about a year and a half we've spent in the gospel according to Luke regarding the life of Jesus Christ from his birth and his life, his teachings, and now we come to the death of Jesus Christ. This last week I reflected and thought about you as many of you in the past year in our church have experienced death. A number of family members and friends have died this past year. Many of you have attended memorial services for loved ones and friends. Yesterday I was in this building as there was a memorial service held for a brother in Christ, giving praise to God for saving him and using him in a mighty, powerful way, but at the same time, sadness and sorrow over a loved one being gone. Death happens right now as I speak. Death happening around the world, which we do not even maybe pay attention to. Sickness, disease, murder, accidents, suicide, abortion, the list goes on. People are dying. I found yesterday there's actually a world death clock in which you can turn that on and you can watch the numbers tick by as an estimates of how many people are dying every single second. When I looked at it last night, since the beginning of this year, they estimate 33.7 million people have died since January in this world. 33.7 million And there's nothing in comparison to, you know, we think about maybe uh, a 600 or 700,000 dying from COVID. Imagine 33.7 million people have died since January alone. And we don't even think about it. You see, death is something that is so natural and a part of your life and mine, as natural as breathing, as natural as eating, as natural as drinking. This week I wrote an article about death, and I was reading in Hebrews chapter 2, it tells us that we, people, mankind, have a fear of death that we're enslaved to, but Hebrews chapter 2 also tells us that by the death of Jesus Christ, he breaks the chains of slavery, of fear, to death for all who are in him. I've written two questions this morning for us to think upon and reflect. Number one, what does the death of Christ accomplish for me? And number two, how should I respond to the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross? As we look at Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 49, the big idea from the text is this. Jesus' death on the cross fulfilled the Father's plan of salvation, giving his people access to a relationship with the living God. Do you have your Bibles with you? There was silence in the room. I hope you do. Turn it on. Um, Yeah, we put some of the scripture on the screen for you. Sometimes we're going through it fast, but you need your Bible. Just because you read the text this week, Bring your Bible. You do not know what the Holy Spirit will do when you read the words of God. Bring your Bible. 
turn it on. If you need a Bible, we'll give you one. There's Bibles in the lobby. If you can't, uh, tell me. I don't have one. I'll buy you one today. But you need a Bible. You need to rely on the Word of God. You do not need to rely on the person who stands in the pulpit preaching the Word of God. Luke chapter 23, verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. The word of God. A few days before this moment of Christ's death, Jesus enters Jerusalem riding a donkey to the crowd's praises and lifting up of his name and waving the palm branches and recognizing him as king. And here just a few days later, Jesus is betrayed by one who had followed him for three years. He's arrested by the Jewish religious leadership He endures an illegal trial during the night and he's found guilty by the religious Jewish leadership of blasphemy against God. Pilate and Herod could not find any wrong in him and three times Pilate says, this man is innocent. But he falls to the cries of the crowd to crucify him and he signs a document and gives them permission to go and crucify the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was beaten during this time repeatedly. He was mocked by many. They spit in his face. He was flogged and he was made to carry his cross. There on Calvary, Jesus was nailed to the cross at 9 a.m. And the mocking continued. Luke now brings us in verse 44 to noon on Good Friday. Jesus on the cross, and now there is a darkness that begins to cover the land. Verse 44 says, it was now the sixth hour, which is noon, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And so for three hours, as Luke and Matthew and Mark record, there was some type of darkness that comes upon the land, and the question is, what is this darkness? What has caused the area there that Jesus is being crucified in, that the people are witnessing, that the, uh, there, there was this darkness? Was there a storm cloud that was covering the sun's light? Was there a dust storm coming in from the desert? Was there a solar eclipse happening at that moment? And the answer is no to all of those. A solar eclipse cannot happen when the moon is full on Passover, what they were gathered at that time to do. There is no dust storm at this that is mentioned. There is no storm clouds that are covering it. Did it just darken the area where Christ and where Jerusalem was? We don't know. The early church fathers say it went beyond Palestine, but we do not know how far this darkness continued. But if you look at verse 45, it says, while the sun's light failed. 
For six hours, Jesus hung on the cross, and the people witnessed him hanging there. They heard the words and the statements that he cried from the cross. And this darkness that you see, the sun's light failing in those last three hours of Christ's life on the cross, it is these hours of the presence of God, the Father, who is judging his son for the sins of his people. And God the Father is pouring out his wrath on the Son. If you are here just a few weeks ago, we looked at Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember that moment? When he's in the cross, or in, in the garden, and he's calling to the Father three times, he says, Father, if it be your will, would you take this cup of wrath away from me? But he said, not my will, but what? Yours be done. Thy will be done. Jesus is now drinking the full cup of wrath of the Father for the sins of his people. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6, speaking of Christ, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus Christ, the sinless, innocent, Son of God, died in our place for our sins and became sin. As we've read many times in this room together, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, it's one of these things that you must understand. When Jesus hung on the cross, he didn't just take some sins like a burden or a backpack upon himself. It says that God the Father made him sin who knew no sin. Jesus Christ never had a sinful thought. Is that amazing to you? Does that astound you that Jesus Christ never, when he was tempted as you are, ever acted upon that temptation and broke the law of God? He was perfect. He was holy. The Son of God also fully man. And he never sinned. And therefore, as we just read, God the Father imputes to the Son the sins of his people. He becomes sin. And therefore, God the Father sees the Son with the sins of his people, and he must pour out his wrath on God, because, on, on Jesus, God the Son, because he is a just, righteous, and holy God. And therefore, the only thing right for a just judge is to punish those who break his law, and the punishment for breaking his law, sin, is death. The greatest pain that Jesus experienced 
was not the nails in the hand or the feet. It was not the physical torture he went through during that time. The greatest pain that Jesus experienced was the Father pouring out his wrath upon him. And the greatest joy, though, for us is that Jesus willingly bore the sins of his people at the cross. It is one of those things this morning, I've been praying this week, that we come to this moment. I felt, I was telling Joel when I walked in, I felt like this is a Good Friday moment. But here's the problem with Good Friday. We come to Good Friday service, and we come in solemn, and there's this like moment of quietness, and then we go the next day, and it's just like you go back to normal. The service is over. This is something that should stir and move our hearts every day, every moment, and at the same time, looking to the empty tomb, seeing what Christ accomplished on the cross, gives great, great, great joy to all of his people that Christ was willing to die for you. Look at verse 45. While the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, At 3 p.m., when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John fills in things that others do not have in their gospel accounts, and it's at 3 p.m. that Jesus cries out. It's at 3 p.m. when Jesus Christ dies. It's at 3 p.m. when the temple of the curtain, uh, the curtain in the temple is torn in two. Matthew says there's a great earthquake that that happens. Mark chapter 15 verse 34 says this, At the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when he says, Why have you forsaken me? We must understand that it was God's plan. It's his will before the foundations of the earth, before time, to crush Jesus Christ, his son. It actually pleased God the Father to do that. And people would say, how could a loving God do that to his son? Turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. We always want to know the will of God, right? It's one of the top five questions that I've been asked for the past 20 years in churches. How do I know the will of God? You want to know the will of God? You read the Word of God. But a lot of times we want to know, what's God's will for my life tomorrow when I walk through that door at work? Read the Word of God. But in it, when we read the Word of God, we see the will of God was to crush His Son. And it says in Isaiah 53, verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. When His soul makes an offering for guilt, He shall see His offspring. He shall prolong His days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. I was reading this week in the New American Standard Version of this passage, and it says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. God the Father was pleased to crush the Son on the cross because in the death of Jesus Christ, redemption for God's people was accomplished. 
That is why God the Father was pleased to crush the Son, because it was through God's plan that redemption would come to his people through the death of Jesus Christ. And when you read prophecy, and we'll see this as we look in Luke chapter 24, Jesus fulfills every detail of God's plan that he has set out before time. In the gospel, according to John chapter 19, in John chapter 19, regarding the death of Christ, in verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You see, what Christ did on the cross was a finished work. There's no more work to do. And the problem for so many of us, and maybe all of us in this world, is we think, if I can do something, then God will accept me. And it's a lie of, that we create ourselves. It's a lie of Satan. There is nothing that you can do or I can do that God would ever accept us or adopt us as his own or make us his own and love us and give us an inheritance for all of eternity. It is only by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross that God would even pay attention to his people and call us to him and make us his own because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ when we place our faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and God alone. says again in verse 45, while the sunlight failed and the curtain temple was torn in two. It's important that we would pause for a moment and look to this curtain and the tabernacle, this sign that's given in this moment when Jesus Christ died. It would be beneficial for you to read Exodus chapter 26 this week, Exodus chapter 40, and it would be beneficial for you to read Leviticus chapter 16. Because in Exodus 16 or 26, in Exodus 40 and Leviticus 16, we have God's word which gives us insight to this curtain and the tabernacle and the temple so we can have understanding. You see, in the tabernacle, God gave explicit, specific details. Create the tabernacle this way. Put these curtains up. And in this place, you place the ark of the covenant and in this manner sacrifices would be made and you must follow them. The place called the Holy of Holies where God appears in a cloud above the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And it was there in the tabernacle and later there in the, ter- in the temple. There was a large curtain. There's actually a couple of curtains in this place. But this second curtain that separates all people from the Holy of Holies. This curtain in the tabernacle was a 30-foot square curtain that was thick. And the temple was much taller. But the purpose was to keep people out of the Holy of Holies where God would be. And the people of God would come to worship Him Only once a year could anyone enter that place and it was the high priest who could enter and was commanded once a year on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, to enter into the holy of holies and do exactly what God prescribed for him to do. 
Leviticus chapter 16 is where this description is. And you have a description in which the high priest is told, before you ever enter into that place, you take a bull and you sacrifice it and you take the blood. You take a ram and you sacrifice it and put it on the burnt, uh, as a burnt offering on the altar. And this was so that the high priest would, would sprinkle this blood on this mercy seat and in that place so that he and his family would be pardoned, passed over, an appeasement of God for their sins before the high priest would then take a sacrifice for the people of God. And the people of God would bring two goats. In Leviticus 16, these two goats are important. And they would cast lots over these goats. And the lot that fell on this one goat, the goat was taken. And the wrath of death was upon this goat. And the goat was sacrificed for the sins of the people of God. And the second goat, symbolically, a hand was placed on the goat that the sins of the people symbolically were placed upon this goat. The removal of sin, the removal of shame, the removal of guilt. And this goat, called the scapegoat, was let free into the wilderness. No more shame, no more sin, no more sorrow. At least for the people of God at that time, for a period of time, until they had to do it again. But the goat foreshadows the cross. The work that Christ did what was done in some way then through the goat. We have this word that we read in the word of God. This big long word called propitiation. And we should never avoid these words. And I think sometimes we're like, I don't know what it means. Well, I'll turn on there. No. Search the scriptures. Ask for help. Look to the word of God and don't be fearful of these things that you don't understand because the Holy Spirit will give you understanding. But this word propitiation is the blood that is from the sacrifice appeases God's righteous anger and wrath. And so blood must be shed. Death must happen to deal with the problem of sin for God's people. But just as the scapegoat and just as the goat that was sacrificed appeased God for a period of time, the blood of Jesus Christ that we began singing about at the beginning of this service removes the sins of God's people forever. Forgiven. Before you were even born at the cross, Jesus Christ forgave you of your sins if you are a follower of him. And therefore, 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And we say thank you. We say, thank you, Jesus, that you would die in my place. We say, thank you, Jesus, that you would shed your blood instead of mine, that I would be forgiven and set free from slavery to sin and slavery to death. 
this tearing of the curtain. If you go back to Luke chapter 23 and verse 45, is a wonderful sign that happened in that moment when Jesus Christ died. Because that tearing of this curtain which separated everyone from going into the Holy Holies of worship God was torn in two, giving us this sign by the death of Christ and the work that He did that we, the people of God, can enter the Holy of Holies and worship God and know Him personally. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 and 20. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. So we don't have a building, and a place in this world where you and I have to go to once a year, where the priest has to sacrifice and shed some blood of an animal for us. We no longer have to have a Passover lamb live in our home for a period of time and then take it to be slaughtered for our sins because Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you look at verse 46 in Luke 23, Jesus calls out loudly and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus obediently and voluntarily gave up his life to die for his people. John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus Christ did not die of asphyxiation on the cross as we looked at how people die in crucifixion last week. Jesus Christ gave up his life. He said it is finished. He breathed his last. He said those things with a loud voice in which we know that the centurion marveled at. Jesus Christ laid down his life for his friends. He loved his people and he gave his life and he willingly and obediently to the Father gave up his life for his people. And I was reminded of Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus dies. His heart stopped beating. 
He physically died on the cross. As we, as we read further in Luke and as you read through the other gospel accounts, time was running out and that day, and, and we'll look at some of these details. But they want to get the people off the cross, want them dead. Pilate is amazed that Jesus has already died at this point and sends a soldier to go check, and they takes a spear and shoves it up underneath the heart of Christ and blood and water flowed, showing that he was dead. Jesus Christ died. He did not just faint on the cross. He died. And that is why when we celebrate the empty tomb, it is a glorious, amazing, wonderful thing because Jesus Christ rose from death to life. Briefly, let's look at the people that were there watching. In verse 47, you see a centurion praises. A centurion praises Jesus. In verse 47, now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. Or the other gospel accounts also say, that he says, certainly this man was a son of God. We don't have it recorded that any of Jesus' disciples make this. None of the women that followed him from Galilee are making this statement. No one else around in the crowds that Luke describes here make this statement. But it's a Roman centurion that would have had 60 to 100 men who followed him. Possibly a man who was hardened in his heart from battle. Because a centurion would lead his men into battle and fight side by side with them. To be a centurion you would have already had to have killed people, fought in battle. He would have already been witness to many executions like this. This Roman centurion was charged with making sure that the men on the cross that day died. And it's this Roman centurion, a Gentile. Certainly this man was innocent. And as we looked at the man who hung on the cross next to Jesus who at the beginning, both men mocked Jesus. But some point after so many hours or whatever, this man witnessing Jesus on the cross and this man next to him on a cross, at some point recognizes and goes from mocking Jesus to calling him king and saying, when you enter your kingdom today, remember me. And he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Don't know if it's the words We don't know if it's what he saw in the suffering. This Roman centurion, we don't know. He witnessed, he heard these things. Maybe it was the fact when Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And we could speculate and we could speculate and we can speculate. But the reality and the truth of God's word says this. For the man on the cross to make the statements he made, for the Roman centurion to declare these things of Jesus, those are all a work of God. It's the Holy Spirit that regenerates the heart of a sinful person, that opens the eyes that we would then say, I am a sinner and I'm going to die under the wrath of God. And then we see the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he died in our place for his, our sins and he shed his blood so that we could be forgiven and he was put in the tomb and on the third day rose again, conquering Satan, conquering sin, conquering death ascending to heaven at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning now, and he's promised to return. 
It is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that any of you, including myself, could say that I'm a Christian because the Holy Spirit opened my eyes and I saw the grace of God and I believed in Him. And I believe this is why the centurion can respond the way he did. We don't know. Tradition says that this guy became a Christian. Again, it's like Simon of Cyrene we saw last week carrying the cross of Christ. We don't know if he's a Christian, if he became a Christian or not. People say, oh, because of this verse with the same names as his son, he's from Cyrene. Hey, he became a Christian too. If they did, praise the Lord. We just know from God's word, there's no way that any of us can save ourselves. There's no way that any of us can just turn away from, I'm just following sin. I'm following death. I'm doing what I want. And then one day, oh, you know what? It'd be a good idea if I just turn and follow Jesus. Jesus, I need you. It does not happen. It is only in the midst of our sinfulness that the Holy Spirit strikes our heart and moves in us and says, Paul, you are a sinner. You are going to die. And you need the Son, Jesus Christ, in which I turn and I realize I am a sinful man and I deserve death. And because of the grace of God, I believe in Him and I am saved. 1 John chapter 5, verse 10. 1 John chapter 5, verse 10 through 12. <clears throat> Whoever believes in the Son of God has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Let me read that last verse. Listen to the simplicity of it. Whoever has the son has life. And whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. You either have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you're saved by His blood shed for you or you do not have the Son and you will die in your sins and you will experience the wrath of God in hell forever. Can I make it any plainer? Actually, I can't make it any plainer. The Word of God makes it simple and plain for you and I. And we must pray, Holy Spirit, open my eyes to see the truth of your Word. And so this Roman centurion finds him innocent. But look at verse 48. The crowds are grieving. The crowds have gathered. I've wondered this week. Look at verse 48. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle. When we get in Luke chapter 24, Jesus is walking to some disciples. And, 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 and they don't see that it's him. And he's like, so what's happened? They're like, you don't know what happened? Are you the only person in Jerusalem that doesn't know what happened to Jesus Christ? And so all the city, all the crowds that assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. I wonder how many of them were there yelling, crucify him. I wonder how many of them left the cross that day hitting their chest, which is a sign of great sorrow and grief, realizing, like the centurion, this man was innocent and we just murdered him. They leave the cross with great emotion. And just like Luke chapter 18, the tax collector that came to the temple to pray to Jesus, he, to, he could not lift his eyes to heaven, but he continued to beat his breast as he looked at the ground saying, I am a sinner. 
when you read Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the first sermon that was given, the gospel of Jesus Christ by the apostle Peter, the people were struck in their hearts, as Acts 2 tells us. Their hearts were rent, and they said, what shall we do? Repent of your sins. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be saved. I was going to say, have you heard the gospel? And all of you have heard the gospel this morning, whether you believe it or not. But have you had your heart rent to the point that you've been brought by the Holy Spirit, that you realize you're a sinner in need of salvation, and it only comes through Jesus Christ, and you've declared, you confessed with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord. If you have, praise God, brother, sister. Praise the Lord because the inheritance set before us. But if you are here and you have never had your heart rent by the gospel and today the gospel of Jesus Christ is stirring your heart, the Holy Spirit is rending your heart, all I can tell you is what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans today. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from death to life and you will be saved. There's nothing for you to do but respond to the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit upon your heart. The last group of people in verse 49 is it says that Jesus' people are watching. Jesus' people are standing afar off from the cross, except for a few that are mentioned like John, one of his closest to him, and his mother and those who are at the foot of the cross. Jesus' people are standing afar from there. It says, all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. The followers of Jesus, the women who had traveled from Galilee, stood from afar watching what was going on. And I have no doubt that they were shocked. I have no doubt that they were grieved. I have no doubt that they were broken, that they were bewildered, that they didn't even know how to respond. And they had great emotion because Jesus Christ, the one they loved, just died upon the cross. But I find it fascinating. It just says they stood at a distance watching these things. Jesus Christ had told his disciples, he says, every one of you will abandon me. Even John, his closest to him. Yes, we see him at the cross. But when Jesus Christ was arrested, what did the disciples do? Every one of them fled from him. Jesus was abandoned by all of his acquaintances, by all of his followers. He was abandoned by all of his people. Even though they went to the cross and they stood at a distance, they watched him die on a cross and they were silent. Remember Peter? No, no, Jesus. Not only will we fight for you, we'll die for you. No, you won't. You'll deny me three times. And as I reflected this week, as I thought about the crowds that were there that day, it's like, Lord, where was I? Was I a part of the crowd yelling, crucify you? <clears throat> Leaving that day grieved in my heart? I was thinking yesterday, I'm like, oh, I sure would like to be the crowd that was the acquaintances of Jesus, <laughs> the ones that were with him for a period of time. <clears throat> but then I'm like, they're just standing. 
And if you are here right now and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are one of his children, the question for you and the question for myself is this. Today, do I stand far off watching? And what do I mean by that? Does my boss, my best friend at school, my school teacher, my neighbors, my family members, the strangers I run to, do they even know that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ? Or am I just seen as the person who stood off at a distance watching Jesus die? Are you the centurion who the Lord's working on you that you would believe today? Are you a part of the crowd that leaves grieving and since not knowing what to do? And God's showing you the truth this morning. Are you a follower of Christ who loves Jesus and cannot await the day to see him face to face? But there's fear of man and fear of persecution and fear of this world. Seek the Lord in those things. Ask Him to work upon your heart. And so we close with the two questions we started. What does the death of Jesus Christ on the cross accomplish for me? Jesus' death on the cross fulfilled the Father's plan of salvation, giving His people access to a relationship with the living God. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You and I, every one of us, born, defiled, guilty, shameful, unclean because of sin that we are born with. But for the believer, no longer. Think about the scapegoat. Think about the cross of Christ. Think about the fact that God says he tosses our sins to the depths of the sea. He remembers them no longer. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin of death is death, but the free gift to God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus shed his blood, and his blood given is the ransom to buy you back from slavery to sin. Jesus Christ is the Redeemer with the power to save you from death because of your sins. And Jesus Christ is that scapegoat who removes your sin. He cleanses you, and those sins are forgotten. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you who were, past tense, Christian, dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling, By canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authority and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Amen. The death of Jesus Christ has accomplished eternal life, forgiveness of sins for all who are found in him. And that second question we asked was, how should I respond to the death of Christ? I've probably said it like 20 times this morning. I would say if you are not overwhelmed with the joy of being forgiven at the cross, I would point you back to the cross and the work of Jesus Christ and pray that you would believe in Him as Lord and Savior. For all of you who are Christians, And today, maybe, or 
Recently, you've been distracted by things of this world and you've forgotten the joy that you have in Jesus Christ. Read the Word of God. Ask the Holy Spirit to remind you of that truth and rejoice that you do not have to die eternally. Yes, we will die. And, and, and I don't know about you, but I have thought many times, Lord, how am I going to physically die? Am I, am I, I want to just fall asleep and wake up. You know, how many are you like that? You're like, I, or no, I don't even want that. It's like, I just want you, Jesus, to come today in the cloud so he could just be with you. I mean, that's even better. But there's always this like fear of like, oh, how am I going to die? Am I going to struggle? Am I going to have pain? Am I going to desire this? Am someone going to kill me? Am I have all these types of things? And yes, there is those physical fears. But follower of Christ, Christian, you have no fear of death. There is no fear of death before you. Last passage to reflect on as you think of that truth. 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ put death to death. And for all who are in Christ, you've been adopted by the Lord God, our Father, you are one of His own. He will not lose you. You will not die and end up in hell as a follower of Christ. You will be with Him for eternity. The spiritual blessings that are promised to you in Ephesians chapter 1, which you have now, are fulfilled in eternity. Your physical body, which in pains, I was complaining the other day because my back and neck was hurting. No more back pain, no more neck pain, no more sickness, no more physical death, but only Jesus our inheritance forever. As the worship team comes forward, would you stand with me as we pray? Jesus, we, we thank you. We do not have words. <clears throat> we thank you for all the physical pains you went through. And we praise you. We thank you that you would take upon our sins. That you would be made sin for us. And that you would take the wrath of your Father for us. We thank you. Father, we thank you that you would not allow your Son to see decay. But that you raised the Son to life on the third day. And in the empty tomb, we rejoice. We rejoice because we no longer fear death. Father, we ask that in this moment, that for all who are far off, that it came into this place without you, that they do not leave today without your Holy Spirit moving their heart, causing them to be born again, and giving them the faith to believe. We ask that you would save. 
And Father, for all who are in you, Holy Spirit, fill us up. Give us the boldness to stand for your name and declare the truth of your word, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the nations until the last day that we breathe our last and we are with you. Be glorified in our praises now to you. In Jesus' name, amen.